If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's podcast is the historian and writer Sean Evans. In her latest book, Maiden Voyages, Sean explores women's lives in the golden age of transatlantic travel. She follows their stories as they boarded ocean liners sailing between continents in the interwar period, in search of employment, adventure and sometimes a whole new life. Sean was talking to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your book considers uh, women's lives in the golden age of transatlantic travel. And to to situate us a bit, would you uh, be able to explain when this golden age was that you're writing about? Okay, so I'm focusing mostly on the era between the two world wars. Um, It was an era when women for the first time, having got the vote, having some kind of autonomy, having some kind of flexibility of movement and maybe independence of money and so forth, uh, had all sorts of reasons to cross the Atlantic, in both directions, between Europe and America, Europe and, and, and Canada. And the reason they were doing this was for a number of reasons. There was a shortage of available men as a result of World War One. So a lot of women were going to try their luck in a bigger gene pool, to be honest. There was a problem with so-called surplus women. There were women who had realised for the first time that they couldn't expect to rely on um, having a father, 
a husband, a brother who would provide for them financially. They needed a career. And there are also women who, for the first time, were thinking, well, I've worked throughout World War I. You know, I've worked in a munitions factory. I've driven an ambulance. I've flown a plane, whatever. What I really want to do now is... Um, is go abroad and, and, and take my chances elsewhere. So there are all sorts of women who were on the move in that era of history immediately after World War I, and it was kind of curtailed, if you like, by World War II. There were women who were working, who were moving for reasons of um, personal autonomy, but there are also women who found jobs on those big ships, servicing, if you like, the female passengers. So can we look at um, a liner at the very beginning of this period you're writing about? Because you know, the, the opulence there, the grandeur, um, you know, is it, pretty staggering. And, and also we could perhaps talk about the Titanic, which obviously many people, many of our listeners will, will of course be aware of. Yes, indeed. I mean, every one of these great big ships that was built uh, in the beginning of the 20th century um, was an improvement, a development on the previous ships. And obviously, there's a great deal being written about the ships themselves. My point was really to look at the women who worked within those ships and how and what their travelling experience was like. Um, crossing the North Atlantic in the 19th century was a very scary and downright dangerous business. People only did it if they absolutely had to. But by the turn of the century, the ships themselves were bigger, they were more stable, and they were safer. And it was at that point that um, the people who built these ships, companies like Cunard, decided they wanted to appeal particularly to female passengers. So they stressed the safety, the luxury, the gorgeousness, the opulence, the fabulous designs, and they created ships that looked on the inside rather like floating stately homes, or rather like posh hotels. So at the same era as you've got um, places like the Ritz Hotel developing, and they were built in places like London and Paris, um, full of magnificent historicist interiors to imply that they were old and venerable and worthwhile and gorgeous. Um, the, the money that was paying for them was new money, but the, the, the conceit, if you like, was this was uh, you were you were a, a visitor in a country house um, staying for a lovely long weekend or something like that. And this was a style that was used in ships like the Titanic and her sister ships, the Olympic and the Britannic. Um, but as you say, you're looking at, at these ships um, through the lens of the women's lives, the women who travelled on them. And, and you write about uh, many different um, women from many different classes. And, and I wondered if we could talk a bit about the role of stewardess, because Violet Jessup really is, well, her experiences are, are really remarkable, aren't they? Violet Jessup is an absolute gift to anyone who who, who wants a, a, a tale of daring do. She she fell into being a stewardess because her family needed her to go to sea to, to earn some money. She was uh, born in um, uh, in Argentina of Irish parents in the 1880s, but her father died and the family had to come back to Britain. They based themselves in Britain, even though they were Irish in origin. And, they, um, and she went to sea as a stewardess. Um, she became known as the unsinkable stewardess because she survived three three maritime disasters, one of which was an accident involving the Olympic, uh, her first great big ship for White Star. Uh, the Olympic um, collided with another vessel. And then she survived the sinking of the Titanic, amazingly enough, purely because she was lucky enough to be asked by one of the crew to get into a boat, into a lifeboat, to show the passengers how it was done. And she was handed a baby and the lifeboat went off and off she went. And then in 1916, she was working uh, on a hospital ship, the Britannic, which was the sister of the Olympic and the Titanic. And um, it struck a mine in the Aegean and there was an awful, terrible 
uh, accident, total carnage at sea, and uh, with little lifeboats being sucked into the whirring propellers. And Violet herself was horribly injured, but she survived. She went back to sea and she carried on. I think her career added up to nearly 50 years of, of sailing as a stewardess. Um, she sustained a terrible injury to her scalp and had to wear a wig for the rest of her life. But nothing was going to stop Violet from going back to sea as a stewardess. Mm. Yeah, she's an incredible character. Mm. Um, and I was interested as well, um, her role and so many of the other um, women who work on these vessels, their role is almost um, part of their role is, is a caretaker role looking after the supposed moral welfare of passengers. Um, can you say anything about how, you know, how women were almost um, put into those roles and how wartime might have changed that? Sure. It's a really interesting era because at the same time as you've got women becoming more adventurous and setting out on their own to, to you know, maybe find a new life, find a new husband, find a new job, that some women were running to America, some women were running away from their home countries. At a time when you've got a huge uh, increase in female emigration to the new world, um, it was felt that uh, there was a concern about the moral welfare of the uh, women and children who were travelling on these passenger ships, largely unaccompanied. What was known um, in the day as the white slave trade is what we now call people trafficking. And it was a very real threat to people who'd come from, let's say, somewhere in Central Europe. They were travelling on their own. They didn't speak the language. They had no idea where they were going. They had just bought a ticket or being shipped out. You know, they, they wanted to go, don't get me wrong. They wanted to go, but they could fall into the wrong hands. And the Canadian authorities in particular were determined that this shouldn't happen. And so they created a new post called Conductress. This is a woman who had been like a stewardess, but she was specifically responsible to travel on each ship of emigres going to Canada and then on to America, to travel on each ship and look after the moral welfare as well as the physical welfare of unaccompanied women and children in all classes. Inevitably, that meant the poorer classes, the third class steerage. And there was a fantastic character called Edith Sauerbutz, what a great name, um, whose unpublished memoir I came across in the Imperial War Museum. And she wrote an absolutely gripping account of her life as a conductress on that route, dealing with people who, with whom she had no language in common, women who gave birth on board having concealed the fact they were pregnant, women who were attempting to get off at the far end and join their boyfriends, all sorts of, um, of goings-on, smugglers, blackmailers. I mean, Edith's account is fantastic. You've already mentioned, um, well, all of these women, women's accounts kind of highlight that there was immense hardship living very much side by side, shoulder to shoulder with this opulence. Um, I wondered if we could talk a bit more about the the, the travel conditions of those in, in steerage and those emigrating to America, because th those journeys are a big part of your book. They are indeed. Up until World War One, um, the conditions in what was known as steerage uh, were really pretty rank. Um, the ship, if you can imagine it, like a like a gateau, several layers, um, literally reflected the hierarchy of Edwardian society before World War One. On the very top, you would have the best cabins, the staterooms, the the lovely public rooms just down below them, um, in which people who were Millionaires, the very wealthy, the aristocracy, people who were frequent travellers would pay a fortune to travel backwards and forwards on a regular basis. And they travelled in great luxury. Below them was a solid tier of second class. Uh, they tended to be your middle classes, the clerics, um, 
people who are traveling for business, business people such as buyers for department stores, um, designers, maybe quite well-heeled people like uh, Dame Nellie Melba, um, people who were celebrities but maybe not rolling in it. Uh, but that was very respectable. And there was a certain amount of permeability between the two classes. When you got on board, that ship, um, say the Aquitania, in 1914, if you were in first class, you'd have a passenger list which listed all the people travelling with you in first class and those in second class so you could mingle with them. Now, down below those people is literally sort of uh, stacked above the cargo, if you can imagine it, symbolically above the hold and and, and close to the, the, the giant sort of um, furnaces which, which, which powered the whole ship were dormitory-style accommodations for um, what were known as steerage. Um, and this was actually what kept the whole ship financially viable, was packing people in tight for very small amounts of money, maybe £10 a head to travel from Europe to New York, uh, whereas up, up above they might be paying, oh, I don't know, $200, £200, something like that, for, for a, a stateroom per person. But down below was where the ordinary people travelled. And there you had... Uh, dormitory style bunks, which were nailed to the floor. Um, they had sort of wire netting. If you were lucky, you had some kind of a mattress. If you didn't bring a pillow, you were in trouble. And you had to have all your possessions with you on your bunk bed. There was nowhere to store anything. Uh, people, obviously, um, the ship was very unstable as it moved out into the ocean and conditions in steerage rapidly deteriorated. There was very little fresh air. People were jammed in together. Seasickness was rife. Um, in an era before any kind of plumbing, people just used uh, chamber pots or went wherever they could. And by the end of the journey, it would be awful down there. You can imagine. Nobody would travel in steerage unless they had to. But then most of these people were only going one way. They weren't planning to come back unless they were wealthy enough to make it into first or second class. Hmm. But, but of course, some people did have to make that journey back very sadly if they were turned back by, by uh, immigration control. That's very true. And we forget about this. We, we hear about Ellis Island, which was the reception centre for New York. And it is an island just off um, the island of Manhattan, uh, where the, um, the first and second class passengers would be taken off by tender or they would be, you know, the, the ship would be brought alongside the, the, uh, the, the berth and they would be allowed off. But the third class passengers, if they wanted to 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 um, to um, enter America, they had to be processed through Ellis Island, which was a giant complex um, staffed by immigration officials, and everyone's papers had to be checked, their baggage had to be checked. They were also checked as well to make sure that they um, that they were healthy. If they had any communicable diseases, or if they appeared to be feeble or too old to work, they might be sent back. And this was, of course, calamitous. Families might be separated. Um, if one had a, a communicable disease like typhus or an eye condition or something like that, they might be turned away. They'd be put back on the ship and they'd be sent back to their home country. Um, and they would have invested everything they had in making this one great trip. On the other hand, if you did get through the process in, in Ellis Island... Um, people have reported on you. You, <laughs> you go through everything. You change your money. You get a new, you know, get a little visa. You get a, you get given a name. Your entry is recorded, and then there is a door which says "Push for New York," and you go through a swing door, and there you are in New York. You have arrived in America. 
so this this picture of the the ships, the logistics of it seems very kind of stratified and strict um, in terms of class. But as you've already mentioned, the, these liners um, they provided plenty of opportunity as well. And one story I really loved was uh, Hilda James, um, who really kind of there's the hardship there, and then also there's there's great success. What can you say about Hilda's story? Well, Hilda James is an absolute heroine in my mind. She was um, she was born into a family. Her father was a window cleaner in Liverpool. She was born in 1904 and she was a skinny kid. Uh, She had a couple of brothers and sisters and she was very energetic and she uh, took to swimming literally like a duck to water, only probably better than a duck. She was an amazing natural swimmer and it was apparent that she was a natural athlete and she she started swimming, I think, in the Garston Baths. Um, She started entering competitions and by the time she was 16 or 18, she was um, a, a British champion. She was winning medals right, left and centre. She went to the Antwerp Olympics in 1920 as part of the British team and she won uh, certainly one silver medal. Uh, and she started beating world records because at the Antwerp Olympics, she made friends with a woman called Charlotte Epstein, who was the... Um, uh, captain of the American swimming team, the women's swimming team, and Charlotte, who was known as Epi, taught her how to do the American crawl, what we now call front crawl, uh, which was a new stroke in Britain. And with this, Hilda was unbeatable. Records just fell before her. Um, she, as I say, came from Liverpool. And of course, the big employer in Liverpool was Cunard, who ran these enormous ships going backwards and forwards across the Atlantic. And the Cunard company got very interested in Hilda and they saw her as a local heroine. And first of all, they offered her the chance to swim in the pool of the hotel they own, the Adelphi Hotel, which is still there. And so is the pool. So she could practice there when the weather was poor. But um, they're also, they also offered her a free trip to America with her mother to take part in a um, swimming competitions, to do galas and events all over all over the northeast coast of America. She went. She loved it. They sailed out on the, I think it was the Aquitania, um, and they had a marvellous time, and they were in second class, but they were allowed to dine in first class because she was a celebrity, and had a fabulous time out there. And they toured the northeast and she gave all these performances and she met a very nice young chap who's a very good swimmer um, with a wonderful physique but he was terribly shy and he was called Johnny Weissmuller and of course he went on to become the film star who played Tarzan um, and I'm sure we've all seen his physique and heard him yodel. In those days he was very quiet but he was Hilda's would-be boyfriend. Anyway, they met, they had a a wonderful time. Hilda came back to Liverpool, was fated as a local heroine and a very, you know, great celebrity. The press loved her, photographs everywhere. But she had a problem with her family. The next Olympics for which she was hoping to compete was in 1924, and that was in Paris. And when she was invited to take part as part of the British team, um, the details were sent to her family and her mother, Gertie, refused to allow her to go unless she, Gertie, could also go on an all-expenses-paid trip. Gertie had enjoyed her free trip to America and she didn't see why her daughter should go to Paris without her. She wanted a freebie. An enormous family row erupted and um, uh, Hilda's father, unfortunately, was a nasty piece of work by the sound of it. And the huge family row which erupted resulted in Hilda being given an awful beating which put her out of the running for competing in the Olympics. So she didn't get to go to the 1924 Paris Olympics, at which it was estimated she might have won as many as three gold medals for Britain. 
Instead, she managed to escape. Cunard were a great help to her. The um, the chairman of Cunard, Sir Percy Bates, um, realised what had happened. He was a local justice of the peace. He'd heard about the trouble at, at her home and he offered her a job as a swimming instructress and then subsequently as a uh, as, as a hostess on board a new cruise ship they were developing called the Corinthia. So when she was 21 years old, she managed to run away and join the ship without her family knowing. She, they did find out just before she set sail. There was another huge almighty family row, but this time she got away. And by working for a year as a swimming instructress and a sort of a cruise hostess, a social hostess, uh, on the Corinthia, um, she was able to change her life for the better. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The rich and famous are travelling on these ships all the time for leisure or pleasure. And when a ship docks, either in Southampton or Liverpool or New York or Boston or wherever, the first people to come on board are usually a tenderful of what are known as the gangplank willies. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So clearly, um, so many uh, career opportunities there for many people in the in the lower classes, um, but. Also, there was opportunity there in the upper classes as well with the names, with the society that was travelling on these ships. They became, um, well, as you call them, floating palaces. Um, what can you say about the, the wealthy and some of the more familiar names, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, for example, who were travelling on these liners? <laughs> well, yes, there are all sorts of people who travelled extensively, um, uh, who treated, who were in a position to treat uh, a transatlantic trip as um, a welcome little break, a five or six day pleasure jaunt. You know, they, they would travel because it was fun. And there were people who whipped across the Atlantic backwards and forwards on a regular basis. Lady Diana Cooper, who was married to Duff Cooper, she was the daughter of the Duke of Rutland. And she had married, she was expected to marry son of a, an aristocrat but in fact she fell for a very nice chap called Alfred Duff Cooper who was um, uh, something something um, in the uh, foreign office I think he was anyway she married him because she fell in love with him and they needed money and Lady Diana Cooper was a noted beauty and quite a good actress and she managed to get a gig um, on stage 
uh, in a touring production called The Miracle, which was a theatrical production which was going to go around America. And the money in it was pretty good. She was the star of the whole thing. Um, and she and her husband nipped over to America uh, on the Aquitania, the first, first ship they took out there. And for the next three or four years, she constantly sailed backwards and forwards to see him or he sailed out to see her. Some people who were wealthy enough treated these ships like what they called the Atlantic Ferry. Because to them, it was like taking the ferry across the Mersey. It took longer, but you could just nip across. If you had the money and you had the time, it was a very luxurious way to travel. People like um, Lady Nancy Astor, who was the first female MP in Britain to take up her seat. Not the first one to be elected, but the first one to take up her seat. She was American-born, and she'd married a a chap called Waldorf Astor of American descent. Uh, And they constantly flitted backwards and forwards. She was a staunch... Atlanticist, I suppose you'd call her, she was convinced that Britain and America should be as close as they possibly could. And so in the 1920s, she was one of the major movers in trying to create the special relationship between particularly Britain and America, but between Europe and America too. So she flitted backwards and forwards and she was a complete celebrity. Wherever she went, whatever she did, she was newsworthy. She was unusual also in that she was a keep fit fanatic. And so um, on one of her trips out there in 1922, she rather amazed her fellow travellers by um, by running round the deck every morning to keep fit in a way that you would you wouldn't be surprised now if you were on a ship to see joggers first thing, but in 1922 to th- see a 43 year old female MP pounding round was was unusual. Let's put it that way. She was quite a character. You, you already mentioned how um, this. Uh these were great opportunities for some of the the elite to mingle. But um, this burgeoning age of celebrity was also an opportunity for the liners themselves, wasn't it, to get big names on their ships. Can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon Mm. and the kind of names they were attracting? Absolutely. With with the growth of of, uh, photography and particularly film at the beginning of the the, the 20th century, obviously photography had been around before, but the uh, the availability of flash photography, um, which made it so much easier than studio photography, uh, and also the coming of newsreels, all of a sudden there's a new a new twist to being famous. Prior to that, uh, a person became famous by writing a novel or um, winning a war or inventing a better mousetrap. But with the coming of the new visual media, people could become famous and instantly recognisable. So somebody like Charlie Chaplin, for example, was largely unknown. He was a jobbing actor, comic actor in Hollywood as he made his first few films. And he literally took a, a, a train ride east for a short break. He went to New York and was staggered to see the face of his alter ego, the little tramp, up on all these billboards adored by millions, and yet, of course, they couldn't actually recognise him without his makeup on. So the whole nature of fame changes in that era. Um, At the same time as you've got famous people expanding right, left and centre and being followed by everybody who could read a newspaper or everybody who who saw a newsreel in the cinema, you have um, uh, a, a passionate interest in celebrity culture burgeoning. People who are servants or have slightly humdrum lives or do quite ordinary jobs want to know about the lives of the rich and famous. And so they they hoover up every detail. The rich and famous are travelling on these ships all the time for leisure or pleasure. And when a ship docks, either in Southampton or Liverpool or New York or Boston or wherever, the first people to come on board are usually a tenderful of what are known as the gangplank willies. Terrible name. Never heard of it before. But anyway, this is what they're called. These are hardened news reporters 
and photographers who get on board before anybody can get off, plough into first class and identify who are the famous, who are the newsworthy, who are the celebrities, and they photograph them and and, and um, interview them for their newspapers or, or, or record them for their newsreels. Um, Lady Astor is a popular favourite, uh, but anybody who's arriving, you know, it could be a, a visiting royalty, it could be a film star. And of course, these people, they recognise the benefit of publicity and they play along with it. So they're willing to be interviewed, they're willing to be photographed. People like Marlena Dietrich will get all the slap on and stand there looking wonderful. Mae West will be ready with a few bon mots. People will be ready to talk in order to publicise what they're up to because it's a symbiotic relationship. The, the star benefits from the publicity. The new, newspapers benefit from reporting what the star is doing. It helps their sales. And who benefits more than anybody are the ships themselves, the companies that run the ships. So ships are, are competing to, to acquire or to get the, the patronage, if you like, of the most starry people. They want, for example, um, Josephine Baker to travel on their ships because she's an international megastar. They want Hedy Lamar. They want oh, royalty in particular. If you can get the Prince of Wales, you know, the future Edward VIII, as wasn't, that was a major plus. But Louis Mountbatten, uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten and his wife Edwina, well, also, they went to America in the early 1920s and they were offered a complete suite on the Majestic for the price of a single cabin to ensure their custom because they were so newsworthy. People wanted proximity also. If you're travelling first class, part of the reason you wanted to travel was because you would be, you know, you'd have that proximity to celebrity. You'd be dining in the same restaurants as the Prince of Wales. You might notice, for example, you'd never get to meet him, but you would notice, for example, that he only uses the fork in his right hand and doesn't cut up his meat in the American manner. And that is something that you can impress the folks with back home when you get back there. So there's a lot of cachet attached to travelling on these ships with the stars. And as I say, it was a three-way relationship. The stars benefited, the ships benefited, and the people travelling with them also felt that they had bought into a particular club. Inevitably, this golden age, it, it does uh, decline. Um, it does. There, there's a fall in, in, in numbers, in, in profit. Um, how, what are the factors that lead, lead to this golden age kind of coming to an end? Well, certainly um, the Second World War obviously put the brakes on passenger travel in a huge way. Some of the people I've written about, though, um, end up going from what had been you know, working uh, in what had become a leisure industry into working for the war effort. And there's some fabulous tales there uh, of women who were determined to carry on sailing on these ships. Uh, um, they were acting as stewardesses or they were acting as escorts to take evacuees around the world, that sort of thing. And they were prepared to risk their life and limb. So what had been a golden age of wonderful leisure travel, um, you know, gardenias and dancing on ships and all the rest of it. Even if you were a stewardess, you had a lot of fun. Suddenly, 1939 becomes a very different prospect. And there's some in very interesting tales there about how these women cope with World War II. Following the Second World War, there's a huge pent-up demand for people to travel. Lots of people found themselves on the wrong continent to put it frankly, when the war ended uh, or even when the war began, there were there are lots of um, millions of troops desperate to get back to their countries of origin. So these great big passenger ships, which have been converted into troop ships during the Second World War, um, are take all the, um, uh, uh, the, um, the, the former soldiers back to their countries of origin. They then take back 
the uh, the brides and the children that these these men have had in many cases. More than 70,000 British-born GI brides and their children are transported on these ships to America and Canada in 1946 and 1947. And that is hilarious in that they were were lovesick, homesick and seasick, as they they put it at the time. Uh, Once the war has settled down, the age of austerity is, is obviously still in place in Britain. It's it's absolutely critical for Britain to get as much in the way of foreign money as it possibly can to aid the GDP. And companies like Cunard, uh, which is by now merged with White Star, that happened in the 1930s, uh, the, the Cunard White Star Company, are, um, are an important source of revenue for, for Great Britain PLC. And um, they throw themselves into carrying, again, once again, uh, celebrities, emigrants, uh, people who are traveling for business from both from both sides of the um, from the, the North American continent to Europe and back again on a very regular basis. And they're doing pretty well. But the reason they're doing pretty well in the 1940s is because, as I say, pent up desire to travel again, but also there's no alternative. And we forget that up until the mid 1950s, if you were a civilian and you wanted to go from any part of Europe to any part of the North American continent, or indeed the South American continent, the only way it was doable was by some form of ship. And I think we've kind of forgotten that, because once air travel came in in the 1950s, and it was possible to fly intercontinentally, if that is a word, I'm not sure if it is, but to fly from one continent to another, once that happened with the invention of jet aircraft, and once the balance between the cost of flying met the cost of a first-class uh, ticket by sea, all of a sudden the beautiful people, the so-called international set, embraced the idea of flight. They, they you know, the airlines, the newly, these nascent airlines set up, um, stressed how clean, how safe they were, how fashionable, how their air stewardesses were, chic and 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 above all how fast it was you could then fly from britain to new york in something like nine hours um and you would you wouldn't have to put up with uh, the north atlantic swell you wouldn't have to put up with the terrible weather because you'd be flying at a suitably high level in the stratosphere so you you unlikely to hit turbulence you wouldn't arrive seasick you wouldn't arrive stained you wouldn't have to have five or six days clinging to the furniture wishing wishing the sea would stop you could arrive chic and soigné and sophisticated and it wouldn't take you a week so once plane travel came in in a big way the shipping companies had to think of a plan b and they reinvented themselves as cruise companies. So the journey itself became the thing. The journey became the holiday rather than a means of transport. And that sort of spawned what we now have as a cruise industry, which, of course, is having its own problems because of the, uh, the, the worldwide pandemic. But that is, as they say, another story. That was Sean Evans, Maiden Voyages, Women and the Golden Age of Transatlantic Travel. Is published by Two Roads and is available now. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Yarn Bill discuss Viking seafaring. <laughs>